Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, this is your first time. We'd like to let you know that you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if that's SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, or Google Play, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Okay, so Radio Islam family, we are pleased to have joining us on the phone uh, two individuals that are going to help us to get some context um, and hopefully walk away a bit more informed about the Uyghur. Uh, the Uyghur are an indigenous uh, a Turkic um, people, Muslim people in uh, China, uh, and there has been lots of uh, there's been lots of coverage, different conversations that have taken place. But we want to make sure that we are coming from an informed position. So we have joining us on the phone Omar Kanat. Uh, he is the director of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and we also have uh, Miss Jessica Batke. And she is the China File Senior Editor. Um, and actually, I should give you a little bit more info. So give me a second. Let me re- rewind myself a little bit. So uh, Jessica, she is an expert on China's domestic political and the social and social affairs and served as the, as the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research Analyst for nearly eight years prior to joining China File. Uh, with regard to Omar, I've already mentioned that he is the director of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Uh, but he was born in Gulja City in East Turkestan. He helped found the UHRP in 2003, as well as the World Uyghur Youth Congress, where he served for two terms as president from 96 to 2000. And he helped found and has served as the vice president of the World Uyghur Congress, uh, Congress since 2006, prior to taking the position of director in 2017. So we want to welcome them both to the program. Yes, well, welcome, to, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So um, if we could start, uh, if we could start first with the, uh, what is the, the history? Um, what is the history of the, the, the Uyghur uh, people that maybe most people who, who may not be aware, you know, of, of, of politics or the, uh, the demographics, What's, what's the history of the Uyghur people? Yeah, Uyghur people are uh, ethnically, uh, culturally Turkic people uh, living in, uh, you know, uh, East Turkestan. Uh, it, East Turkestan, uh, commonly known as East Turkestan. It's a part of the Central Asia. Mm-hmm. And the Uyghurs have a rich culture, history, going back almost to thousands of years. Before embarrassing Islam in 10th century, Uyghurs... Uh, believed in Buddhism, uh, Manichism, in Nestorian Christianity. Mm-hmm. Today, Uyghur uh, practice a moderate form of Islam and uh, lead predominantly secular, uh, secular lives. Mm-hmm. East Turkestan has a rich and distinct history. So we call the land East Turkestan. It is the historical name of our homeland. But the Chinese government uh, call it uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. This autonomous status was given to this area in uh, 1955 after 
communists took over uh, in uh, 1949. In 1933 and 1944, uh, twice, Uyghurs uh, uh, managed to st establish two uh, in this area, but both republics crashed uh, in, uh, in cooperation between the Soviet Union and uh, Communist China. So the uh, population of Uyghurs are uh, approximately, uh, according to Chinese uh, sources, 11 million, but the Uyghurs think they are more than that. Uh, the, uh, according to Uyghur sources, uh, the Uyghur population is approximately 18 million mm. uh, uh, and we have also uh, Uyghurs have a large diaspora in in Central Asia especially in Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan Uzbekistan uh, and also in Turkey and uh, Middle Eastern countries in Europe as well so uh, the Uyghurs have a, a very uh, close uh, historical and cultural and linguistic uh, relationship with the uh, people in Central Asia. So we almost speak the same language, for example, uh, with the Uzbeks. Okay. All right. yeah. The Uzbeks of uh, Uzbekistan. Okay. Um, uh, Jessica, if I, could add, if I could direct this question to you uh, with regard sure. to the... Um, because the reason that, the reason that uh, we've seen the Uyghur in the, in the news that we've been talking about them, it's been... It's all centered around this, these re-education uh, camps. You know, I'll say that in quotes. Um, what are the, how does that history uh, of the Uyghur people, um, what is its impact with regard to these re-education camps? Sure. Thanks again for today. Um, as Omar was saying, the Uyghur people have a very complicated and contentious history in terms of their relationship with China. And as you said, the language is completely different from Chinese. It runs much closer to Central Asian languages, and culturally it's much closer to Central Asia than it is to China. And so because the Uyghur people are culturally, linguistically, and particularly religiously distinct, um, there's a real sense of sort of difference from the majority ethnically Han Chinese um, that predominate in China and, and are, uh, make up most of the government. And the government is pretty concerned about this sense of difference, right? So one of the ways that they're trying to get at this now is by setting up what they're euphemistically calling re-education camps. Um, I think we should have a larger conversation, if not here today, but in general, about what we should be calling these camps. I think re-education is a bit too nice of a term. Yeah. Uh, today I'll just call them camps. Mm -hmm. But basically going through these re-education camps is supposed to help them change their quote-unquote extreme religious or ethnic identities into something that much more closely resembles sort of the ethnic Han cultural norms and preferences. But just like discriminatory regimes or practices all over the world, the majority ethnic group, in this case the Han, has trouble seeing that their own norms and preferences are not somehow universal or immutable defaults or normals, right? They see differences in beliefs and identity as dangerous aberrations from what they consider normal and don't understand that their normal is also just sort of a somewhat arbitrary set of norms and preferences. I don't know if that answers your mm. question. Oh, sure, sure. And, and, and I am definitely open to, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I definitely don't want that to become um, 
that's not something that I accept, right? And that's why I mentioned uh, re-education in quotes, right? Because it's anything but that. Because if if, anyone, if either of you would like to go ahead and address uh, this uh, question, um, are these camps, these camps, I would say these are not voluntary, right? No, not at all. Of course, uh, you know, this is... Uh this is uh, Chinese government, uh, you know, call it, you know, that's uh, re-education comes, but it is not re-education comes. Right. There are a lot of, uh, although Chinese government, uh, you know, deny that existence of this uh, comes, and they say this is, you know, these are, uh, you know, vocational training centers, but uh, there are a lot of public information. Uh, reportings, uh, multiple, you know, independent reportings, and the research of the uh, Western scholars, uh, uh, witnesses, victims, or, uh, who, you know, detain and uh, then release from these uh, camps, indicate that the, these are not uh, a, 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 what, as the Chinese claims, you know, a, a education camps. These are uh, real prisons. Uh, you know, detention centers. Terrible things are happening in this detention center. Mm -hmm. There are uh, reports of death in custody, torture, and all kind of brainwashing. What the uh, uh, people are forced to do, the Uyghurs in these camps, first of all, they have to renounce their religion, renounce their culture, and uh, 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 declare their, uh, you know, uh, loyalty uh, to Communist Party, praise the Communist Party, praise the Xi Jinping, and uh, uh, denounce and renounce everything that they value. So, mm -hmm. and uh, there are uh, took uh, now over one million Uyghurs are uh, uh, being uh, detained in these, you know, detention centers. Over one million, and uh, according to a report of a uh, human rights organization, uh, more than two uh, million people are forced to attend political, you know, uh, indoctrination, cultural and politic, uh, political indoctrination uh, centers. These are, these are also part of the so-called re-education camp. This, uh, you know, uh, the detention centers or uh, internment camps uh, uh, fit all the definition of a, uh, you know, concentration camps. Yes. The uh, intention of the Chinese government is to, you know, culturally uh, eliminate a uh, ethnically and culturally eliminate Uyghur people right. uh, in these camps. Let me let me ask this because it's been it was mentioned that um, the threat being uh, divergent um, ways of thinking. Uh, whether that regards uh, theology or, or political thinking, uh, that that's something that has been uh, that has been seen as a threat um, to China, uh, to its existing system. So, if I could ask, how does the uh, existing educational uh, system, uh, if you will, how does that education impact the perception of the Han Chinese? Um, in, in regard to the treatment of the Uyghur? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about yeah. that. Um, in general, sort of 
in public discourse in China, ethnic minorities are very much presented as the other and, and usually sort of as condescendingly as sort of little mascots, people wearing colorful costumes that love to sing and dance. And in some ways, that's at least a somewhat positive portrayal, but as I said, it's condescending. Um, and that's the positive side. There's this much darker sort of negative portrayal of ethnic minorities in China. Um, and part of that has to do with religion. So in the education system, the Marxist view of the world prevails, that religion is some sort of superstition and that it's eventually going to die out. So while the government has stopped trying to eradicate religion fully, it, it learned during the Cultural Revolution that wasn't possible. Um, it still has this mindset that, you know, religion is superstition and people that adhere to that are sort of backward superstitious people. And outside of the formal education system, there's lots of media portrayals that sort of toggle between the sort of ethnic minority as mascot portrayal and one that emphasizes Uyghurs' implicit or explicit connection to terrorism. And so this gets repeated in media a lot and influences how people, particularly those who haven't met any Uyghurs or traveled to Xinjiang before, think about Xinjiang. Um, the domestic media in China is censored, right. so it has to be careful. They won't say anything that's too inflammatory. They, they don't also get to decide what they write all the time, but domestic media does repeat a lot of government assertions that are unfounded, um, and that re- increases the amount of Islamophobia maybe that's in um, regular, larger society. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on social media that is very Islamophobic, anti-halal, uh, very strangely. And and importantly, minorities are a pretty small, I think minorities are a pretty small part of the population. Um, and so if you don't live in certain areas, if you're an ethnic Han Chinese, you may never really meet um, a Uyghur person. And that makes it harder to combat the sorts of stereotypes and myths that you might have grown up with. Mm. Sounds very similar to uh, conditions here in the United States. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you no, mention, you can, yes. <laughs> but uh, but uh, uh, for many years, Chinese government has uh, uh, she uh, for uh, said uh, many, uh, for many years, Chinese government, you know, uh, portrayed Uyghurs as a uh, security threat, as as terrorists, as extremists, and. That through this, you know, negative propaganda, Chinese uh, Communist Party and the government managed to uh, succeed in uh, brainwashing a large part of the Han Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, even uh, when they come to, uh, you know, and also this uh, repression has been going on for many decades, and uh, millions of Han Chinese already brought in from mainland China into East Turkestan and uh, already changed the demography of the East Turkestan. And when the Han Chinese uh, come to this area, they already have a prejudice against the Uyghur people. And mm-hmm. many Han Chinese think that the Uyghurs deserve this, you know, this uh, uh, repression yeah. and uh, deserve all these, you know, uh, 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 suppression by the Chinese. Uh, Let me ask government. this. Let me ask this. When we when we bring terrorism up into the into the conversation, what examples, right? What incidents uh, is China pointing to to try to bolster its claims that the Uyghur uh, Uyghur are a violent or a dangerous uh, people? 
or is this or is this just mere fabrication? Um, I, I would say that there are definitely incidents of violence um, and some which might be called terror. But I think the problem is that the vast majority of people don't engage in this sort of behavior. And because information is so hard to get, it's really hard to know what happens in a lot of cases, right? The only reports we have in many cases are the Chinese government reports. People cannot go in and independently verify what happened. So while you know, um, it's hard to say that there have been no, you, you can't say there have been no incidents of violence, right? Sure, sure. But um, it's, it's just really not fair to paint an entire people as violent and as terrorists or proto-terrorists simply because of, you know, who they are and what they believe religiously. Right, right. But, uh, but uh, what's happening in the region now it doesn't have, I think, uh, to, anything to do with the terrorism. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, war, uh, war uh, against a religion, against a people, against a, uh, a, an ethnic identity. So uh, expression of, you know, the ethnic identity also being considered as a, as a crime. And as uh, she pointed out, you know, there have been some incidents of violence very uh, isolated incidents, and uh, we don't know whether it is uh, real uh, terrorism. But the, so one thing is very clear, there is no organized terror groups or terrorist you know, activities uh, in the region. But mm. the Chinese government, of course, portrays everything, portrays Uyghurs, and uh, claim there have been, uh, there, uh, have been terrorist activities there. But uh, this, uh, this is not independently, you know, uh, 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 proved, but uh, they uh, also, uh, Chinese government, uh, uh, they portrayed some incidents as terrorist incidents, but nobody knows, uh, you know, whether it was a ter terrorist incident. And they, uh, for example, in some incidents, they uh, claim that they uh, arrested, detained the ter terrorists, and they uh, secretly uh, you know, tried it, that people uh, uh, and then executed. But nobody knows what happened, whether they really committed that act or not. Nobody knows because of this, you know, the restrictions uh, and the uh, foreign journalists are not able to, you know, to talk with them or the Chinese government uh, don't uh, disclose any, you know, all these uh, the, the trials being conducted secretly, so mm -hmm. therefore there is no information. So I just I also want to pick up on something over sure. just said that's really important, which is the people that are being held in these camps right now mm -hmm. are not, as far as we know, you know, being accused of committing terrorist acts, right? I mean everything that we know and again it's very hard to know because independent verification is not allowed. But these people are being picked up because there's quotas, right? Um, some county, some district, some neighborhood have a quota of how many people yeah, they need yeah. to send for re-education. Mm. So if this person, you know, d didn't want to have a drink with someone, right, they didn't want to drink alcohol, that's seen as extreme, and they can be sent to re-education camps for that. So, so there isn't even really in these cases a connection with mm. this sort of terrorist threat that the Chinese government has been playing up for years. They've kind of moved beyond that with these camps and are just, as Homer said, 
criminalizing ethnic and religious identity. Yeah, so in, uh, as it relates uh, to... You know, this uh, year, uh, hmm? it, 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 it was, uh, sorry, pardon, uh, last year in a- April, the Chinese uh, government uh, adopted a new uh, regulation, this, uh, you know, a de-extremification uh, campaign. They started the de-extremification campaign, and according to the new this regulations of de-extremification, there are 75 signs of, you know, uh, extremism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, the rejecting, uh, as she said, drinking alcohol uh, or being considered as a sign of uh, extremism. Even now, uh, you cannot name, uh, give a Muslim name to your children. If you name your child as Muhammad, mm-hmm. that is being considered as sign of uh, an extremism. They already banned certain names like Muhammad, Islam, Imam, for example, mm-hmm. Hadija, Fatima. All these names are banned now in 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 in, in the region. If you have uh, you, uh, are you your name is Muhammad, then you have to change your name. Yeah. Well, let me ask this: Is else. there is there any uh, Uyghur representation within the uh, Chinese Communist Party? <laughs> that's, that's a really good question. So the way that the Chinese state works is kind of an inverse of the old Soviet system, right? In the Soviet system, in a region or a province, they would have the party secretary be um, the local ethnicity that was predominant in that area, and then like the person running the government would be a Soviet representative. In China, it's flipped. So the party secretary in Xinjiang is, is ethnically Han, which is the majority. And then the chairman of the Uyghur Autonomous Region is, um, is Uyghur. And so that's generally how it works throughout the system. Throughout Xinjiang, they have a part of the party secretary will be Han, and then the second in command, the head of the government, will be uh, Uyghur. And that is very intentional. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms uh, of... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just going to say, in terms of actual representation in the Chinese Communist Party, it's hard to know. I don't have, like, the full role of the Chinese Communist Party, but it's minimal. It's, right. it's not a lot of people. Okay. So I, want, I just wanted to say that not only, you know, in autonomous region, but in all, uh, you know, uh, level, the party secretaries are a Han Chinese. Even in a village, the party secretary, most of the villages, our party secretary is a Han Chinese. If, uh, you know... The village chief is a Uyghur, so he doesn't have any power. So power is in the hands of the Han Chinese, who is the secretary of the party. So therefore, that doesn't uh, have any meaning. If you are in a party, you are a member of the party, when you are Uyghur, that, uh, you know, you cannot, you know, uh, do anything. So you have to listen to your uh, uh, party secretary, who is a uh, Han Chinese. Mm. And certainly I can't think of anybody in the central government that is, is high up in the central government that is ethnically Uyghur. Right. <laughs> so no, no representation, uh, basically. No, no. Yeah. And then also being subject to, uh, you mentioned quotas, right? So they have quotas for these camps. Um, in addition to those quotas, is it also a, a matter of, uh, of, of process that you can be you can have someone turn you in 
or identify you personally as a as an extremist or someone who is deserving of of going to one of these camps? No, no. It, it, it uh, you, uh, there, the people, you know, there uh, there are all you know ordinary people, right. and uh, they are uh, business businessmen, intellectual uh, scientists, even uh, soccer player. Uh, all of them are uh, targeted here. No, no, so no. They I... give, uh, for example, mm-hmm. in in some places. Local officials have to meet, as she said, a quota for detention. Right. So they have uh, to detain a certain number of people or they will uh, lose their jobs. In some cases, it is, uh, according to the information received, 10%. In some areas, as conservative areas like Khotan, for -hmm. example, in the south of East Turkestan, it says it is uh, 40%. Some officials even complain that, uh, that... uh, uh, they are having trouble in meeting these quotas. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll add a little bit. I think it also gets at your question. Okay. Um, and that is, yes, I think people can turn each other in. I don't know a lot about Uyghurs turning in other Uyghurs, but I do know that, and we're going to have a um, an article up on, on Chinafile.com soon about this. I'm sorry, I have to promote no, our site. Please, but, please do. <laughs> um, it, it's about a... Um, a government program that's been in effect for a while now where they send in uh, Chinese cadres into Uyghur homes. Yeah. So they'll yeah. stay with the Uyghurs mm-hmm. so that they can observe behavior, uh, take notes, and make recommendations if certain people in the household um, are showing signs of what they consider extremism and should be educated. And again, this is the same sort of thing we're talking about. This is not wanting to drink alcohol. This is not wanting to eat pork. Um, you know, talking about religion at home. I mean, just very invasive sort of going into someone's home and observing their behavior and deciding whether or not they should be, quote-unquote, re-educated because of that. Yeah, even uh, they wow. have to, uh, they are, uh, in some places, they are, you know, uh, staying overnight at Uyghur houses. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, is, it is a humiliation. It's an insult. It's a humiliation to, the, uh, to Uyghur people. You know, uh, the, how you can, uh, can you imagine, you know, uh, the, uh, your, uh, all, most of the Uyghur males are detained, they are in detention center, and the Communist Party Chinese authorities put party officials, male party officials in the homes, uh, household, uh, in the homes of the Uyghurs, uh, uh, Uyghurs, and also even they, uh, they uh, spend uh, the night with the Uyghur families and stay overnight. Even uh, there were some uh, in social media, some pictures showing that the Chinese party officials uh, uh, stay overnight in a bed with the Uyghur, you know, elderly people. You know, this is this is uh, disgusting and this is uh, you know so humiliating uh, actions. Yes, yes. And I'll also point out that is you know. These are people that still have homes that can be visited. In some cases, if a mother and a father have both been taken away, then children are forced into orphanages. And there's been multiple media reports about overflowing orphanages and the government not quite knowing what to do with a large number of Uyghur children who no longer have a mother and father to care for them because they've both been sent away to camps. Mm. Um, So I was 
you you answered the question. I was looking at uh, specifically Han and Uyghur uh, Uyghur relationships, and if they were devolving because of these camps, uh, and basically if their removal is incentivized because there's, I imagine, you know, in any society that there's an economic component to someone leaving, right? This is a person who had a job. Uh, uh, Omar, as you mentioned, you know, you have scientists and, and, and athletes and teachers and so on. And when that person is gone, when they come back, or if they come back, I assume that life has gone on without them. Yes. Right? So, yes. yeah, so uh, so those who do come back, they don't have they don't have any recourse, do they? Uh, uh, as uh, like uh, I said, you know, uh, the uh, people are, who are in uh, real detention centers. Yeah. You know, when they uh, came, uh, but we haven't. This is the one of the side of the frightening side of this uh, thing, yeah, because we haven't heard anybody until now. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, came out from these uh, detention centers. There were some people who uh, spent some uh, time in this uh, detention center and later released. Uh, they uh, they were uh, 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 foreign country citizens, like Kazakh, some uh, Kazakhstan citizens who have been detained and later released. And they were the one who exposed actually what's happening in these re-education camps. But uh, until now, I haven't heard any Uyghur who, who ca- came out of these uh, detention centers and oh, wow. uh, managed to get out of the country. Maybe there I... are some, but it is very, very few. So it is, therefore, the Uyghurs are very concerned what is happening in, uh, to those people who are in detention centers. Because once you are taken away and put in these detention centers, Nobody is uh, able. Uh, nobody is able to uh, communicate with you or uh, to uh, find out what's happening to you and about uh, have any in, any information whatsoever about your whereabouts, about your well-being. Mm. Jessica, I, I would. Yeah, I would just say I would underscore the lack of transparency here. So I think there was one case that I've heard of. Um, it was written up in foreign policy online. I think the title was something about how I spent my summer in a Chinese gulag, um, where it was a Uyghur who is living in the U.S., had gone back home, um, was was picked up for a little while, and then was released and is now back in the U.S. and was brave enough uh, yes, to write yes, about it. Yes. Mm. Um, so I think there are a couple of cases where people have gotten out, but, but the real problem is we don't know. We just don't have a way of finding out. And there's a huge range of, I think Omar mentioned this before, of sort of camps and detention centers that people can be sent to. I won't bore everybody with this, but there's, uh, you know, there's prisons, there's detention centers. Those are part of the legal system. And then there's these you know, quote-unquote, re-education camps that are completely outside the legal system. And even within that, there's a huge range of things. Sometimes they're morning classes or evening classes. Sometimes they're, you're just being held incommunicado for months. So, again, I just can't stress enough. Um, we just don't know what's going on because independent international observers are not really allowed in to understand what's happening. Right, and then, and then there's a dependence upon um, state-run media uh, to cover it. So, right. yeah. Um, so what's the estimate right now of the number of, of Uyghur that are 
uh, that are detained or in these camps right now. Is there is there a rough estimate? I think Omar said this before. Um, the UN recently had an estimate of one million, but again, it's really hard to know. And then, you know, does that include everybody that was held, or have some people been released? We don't know. And I think the number—you can correct me if I'm wrong, Omar—it was around yeah. two million that have been held at some point, or that are going yeah. through these morning or evening training yeah. classes. Yeah, and again, these are all extra legal. This does not include people that are being held um, in detention centers or prisons for other crimes, quote-unquote crimes. These are just people in the extra legal re-education camp system. So for those that are listening right now, this may be their first. I mean, we've had one other conversation um, with regard. uh, We've had one other conversation regarding the Uyghur uh, on this program, uh, well, about maybe three months ago. Um, but I'm sure that there's still quite a few folks that this may be their first time hearing about them. Um, in a country like China, where there is such there are such impediments to access uh, and transparency, what is it that listeners um, can do or feel empowered uh, to do to try to help that transparency come about? Yeah, one uh, thing I uh, just want to mention, uh, that because Chinese government claims that, the, you know, uh, this is part of the uh, anti-extremism or anti-terrorism campaign, but uh, it is what's going on in the region is also against the anti-terrorism law that the Chinese government, you know, uh, adopted uh, 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 in East Turkestan or in uh, generally in China, yeah, mm-hmm. this law, anti-terrorism law. Because in anti-terrorism law, also there are some procedures, there are some rules, but there is no rule in East Turkestan now. The, uh, the people uh, randomly, you know, uh, of the uh, uh, Uyghurs are being uh, dragged from houses or uh, arrested uh, right on the street and taken to, you know, to this uh, uh, detention centers. There is no rule. There is no law. There is uh, nothing to uh, to. Uh, so uh, the government, the officials, feel free to do whatever they want with the uh, Uyghur uh, people in the region. And uh, uh, there should be also, uh, of course, a, a pressure on Chinese government. Uh, and uh, what we uh, want uh, to the listener uh, to do is to you know. To uh, uh, to ask their uh, you know uh, representatives in the U.S. Congress to you know to uh, take this issue seriously and to take uh, and to uh, issue statements on, and uh, uh, ask uh, the U.S. administration uh, to uh, to interfere and uh, uh, put pressure on Chinese authorities at least. Uh, to uh, to uh, release uh, you know the uh, innocent people who are being detained mm-hmm. without uh, without any charge they are uh, detained without any charge so being uh, so and at least gave information about the people in the detention centers there are t- thousands of millions of Uyghurs who are relatives or uh, in these detention centers and have not been able to get any kind of information about their whereabouts and about their well-being. Mm. Yeah, I would just want to second what Omar just said, and 
I'll, I'll say this as a blanket statement for everything I said today, which is I'm just here speaking in my personal capacity. I'm not speaking on behalf of any um, entity other than myself. Sure. But um, he's right. The best thing you can do if you're a listener is call your local representative. And I know um, that people think, oh, that doesn't matter. You know, why would they care what I say? They do very much care what you say. And I can tell you that what needs to happen in order to get some sort of um, change moving in our foreign policy is there needs to be political pressure on the administration to do something about this. Um, and, of course, we can't, like, march into China and change anything, and nor we want to China as a, foreign country, as a sovereign country, but we can, there's lots of things we can do. And certainly the U.S. government could be making a lot more public statements about this. Right. Um, they could be bringing it up in all of their meetings with Chinese officials. Um, there are there are many of options that um, include sanctions that include yeah. looking at import export controls. I won't go into all of those, but suffice it to say that in order for Congress or the administration to feel that they should act, they need to hear from their own citizens that this is a really big concern for them. So I would just ask that anybody who's listening and, and cares really do call your local congressman and let them know that this is an issue we really care about. Okay. Well, um, we sincerely appreciate both of you, Omar and uh, Jessica, both of you for coming on uh, Radio Slime to talk about this very important uh, issue. And we um, hopefully we can get an update again uh, soon. But I think the more people know, the more people know, the more people are able to do that very simple thing, uh, which both of, you, well, both of you mentioned, which is to contact our representatives, contact yeah. our local uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, our, our state and our federal uh, officials uh, and and put the pressure that's going to be necessary uh, to bring about uh, some uh, positive change. So thank you once again, Omar Kanat. He is the director of the Human right, uh, Uyghur Human Rights Project. Uh, Jessica Batke is the uh, China File Senior Editor, and we thank them both for being with us. We're going to take a short break, but we will be back in just a minute. This is Radio Slam on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM and streaming at WCEV1450.com. We thank you for tuning in, and if you are just tuning in, make sure that you are keeping up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also make sure that you take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. 
So if you missed the live, you can always go back and check the podcast out wherever you get your podcast. So if that's iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or TuneIn, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. I'll say it again, at Radio Islam USA. Okay, um, we're going to continue in this theme of uh, awareness about some of the uh, atrocities and just some of the the things that we need to be aware of as an informed public. So we just spoke with Omar Kanet and Jessica Batke uh, regarding the Uyghur. And now we're going to transition and we're going to talk about a few other things. We're going to talk about another situation which is very uh, pressing, and that is the the genocide that is taking place uh, with regard to the Rohingya uh, Muslims in Burma. So, and to do that, to help us get some perspective on where things stand right now, and also to also give us a, a bit of a glimpse into how we can look at what we can expect from our um, our elected officials, right? Because this is election season, and we know these elections are going to have an impact on how our country responds to uh, different situations that are going on uh, going on around the country, around the world. Excuse me. So to help us get some perspective and to give us an update, particularly with the uh, Rohingya, we have with us now the president and founder of Sound Vision, also the chair of the Burma Task Force, Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. How are you, Imam Tariq? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing well. Doing well. Good to talk to you. Um, so yeah, we talked about the Uyghur. Let's let's talk about the. Uh, the Rohingya. Let's talk about that because there there are some folks who are just now hearing about them and don't know what their what their plight is. Um, well, the world uh, knew what is happening in uh, Burma mm-hmm. to Rohingya people. Uh, this is probably the most documented genocide in the world. It was being documented live uh, while it was happening compared with the images of the villages before and after. Mm -hmm. And the world uh, did not remain silent. Somebody spoke here and there, but they did not take any action. So within a couple of months, the largest refugee camp in the world was created, where now there are 1.1 million people Mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. Since no one did anything and allowed military to do whatever they want, the result is neighboring countries, as well as Burma, are learning from it. Burma is learning we can do anything, nothing going to happen to us. Right. Except some statement and some reports. Who cares for those statements and reports? So the result is after uh, getting rid of Rohingyas, there were three million Rohingyas. Now only half a million left in Burma is starving to death, essentially. Two and a half million in other countries, 1.1 in Bangladesh. So after getting rid of them, they are attacking Kachin. Kachin are uh, uh, another tribe, ancestral people inside Burma. And they um, are Christians. Mm-hmm. In neighboring India, they have taken away citizenship of four million people. And guess what they are saying? They're Bengalis. This is exactly what really? was said to uh, Rohingya people in Burma. Right. And 10,000 of them are in detention camp, and they want to get rid of more people. 
and uh, the you know the politician talking about taking away their land uh, and they are they have been there for forever including the relatives of a former president of india have lost their citizenships wow and now china i did not know it is such a bad situation in china but in china there is a area called xinjiang xinjiang literally means uh, uh, new colony Mm-hmm. China calls Xinjiang Xinjiang because it was not China. They occupied it, uh, uh, and uh, after occupation, they call it. I actually met the the last prime minister of Doge Turkestan, Eastern Turkestan. It was a country by itself. There are Turkish, Turkic-speaking people, uh, very different from Chinese. So since they colonize it, call it Xinjiang, they have been doing all sort of nasty thing to them forever. Yeah. I visited that area, and it was uh, wherever I visit a mosque, uh, they will uh, uh, when I leave, uh, security type people with their pen and pencil will surround. Now pen and pencil are gone. Each mosque, when you enter, their facial recognition system are installed. So enter a mosque a little more often, mm-hmm. you're an extremist. But what is world doesn't know is that uh, one million people at least, some say one and a half million, some people say three million Uyghur people are in concentration camp. Imam, let me let me go back a bit to the one point was it one point one or one point three million um, Rohingya that are now in a refugee camp, the world's largest refugee camp in in Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, so one point one million. Rohingyas in refugee camps there. So let me ask this. What, prior to them getting to that refugee camp, could you talk about some of the things that they have experienced, some of the uh, vow treatment that they have received on their way to those, um, to those camps, to that camp? Actually, Rohingyas and uh, Rakhine, Buddhist, they arrived in the same area, same time, a uh, couple of thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Some became Muslim, some became uh, Buddhist, and uh, they are similar type of people, border border people. Um, and they, for centuries, have uh, run their own government together, independent state. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, sometimes even Buddhist will call them some sultan. Actually, the first coins of that area in Burma uh, have uh, a statement of faith of Muslim written on it. So Buddhist and Muslim have no problem. Military government in Burma, which killed the father of Suchi in a military coup, they started dividing and conquering using that type of uh, thing. So in 1982, they took away the citizenship of Rohingya people. And uh, at that time, their problem began. And uh, when they took away the citizenship, of course, they kicked them out from the government job, from the military there is a, actually a, a commander of Burmese military who was a Muslim Rohingya. He's sitting in the camp also. Wow. <laughs> so they kicked them out after 1982, took away citizenship. Then they introduced series of uh, apartheid-type laws. So apartheid came into place. For example, uh, you cannot live in the same neighborhood. Uh, Buddhists will give electricity by the government. Uh, you know, Rohingya people will not get. Actually, they use the term called kalar for them. It's a derogative term. Yes. Uh, sort of an N-word mm-hmm. uh, in America. 
and uh, then they cannot enter a school they cannot uh, since 2012 they wiped all muslim out of the capital city of that area uh, 140000 people they are still in the concentration camp actually mm. so these things what they were doing one year before uh, these attacks by the military they started entering homes and taking away anything which could be used as a weapon like a knife for your kitchen uh, there are farmers so um, uh, equipment for farming so they had nothing left leave them defenseless they were defenseless mm-hmm. and that's what uh, united nation other are counting you disarm the people uh, you destroy them uh, so it was all intended to do that and that's why united nations is calling it a genocide i hope our government also calls it a genocide now how can for those who are for those who are maybe not who have not been aware of what's going on how can they use their voices to make sure that our elected officials are responsive well uh, you know united states has done amazing thing they have done a scientific survey mm-hmm. of all the rohingya people in the camps okay through random sampling it's a scientific method with the margin of error 3% they have interviewed whole lot of people they have 18000 pages of documentation mm. this is a no other government has done that based on that uh, just day before yesterday the national security council ambassador haley said that uh, close to 80% people they interviewed have seen somebody getting murdered mm. and more than 50000 uh, more than 50% of people have seen 100 plus people getting murdered from their eyes 40% people have seen a rape taking place so based on that their government our government should announce that it is a genocide right. so she said well our finding are the same as uh, un finding but so far she hasn't used the word uh, genocide genocide word is important so whoever is listening call your senators and congressperson and secretary of state ask them to use the g word because the reason genocide word is important because it's a legal term people have been calling it ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. ethnic cleansing is not a crime in any book of law so it was a joke right genocide is a crime america has signed a genocide treaty which obligates us to stop it and punish those who are responsible for it mm. so that's the main aim second thing something worked over there was uh, um, full sanctions on burma because their economy is controlled 70% by the military and uh, if there is a economic sanction uh, they will take notice that's what allowed suchi to have some form of democracy and to make sure that rohingyas are uh, taken back in their country with security and citizenship which is mother of the problem right. uh, i think those sanction can play a role so call it genocide and put full sanction on them of course i never support sanctions on food and medicine uh, sure. but uh, economic sanction should be in place now you mentioned that the world didn't do anything when they saw in 1982 uh, the rohingya lost their they had their citizenship taken taken away from them and that began a series an an avalanche of events that have now led us to uh, uh villages being razed um rapes and 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 murders and a 1.1 million population in a refugee camp in Bangladesh 
how has it also how has it also uh impacted India as you said that people were not paying attention and there's some there's some parallels that we can draw well, between India the two. is in a terrible situation for a while now uh, there is a guy named Modi he's their prime minister mm-hmm. he was banned from entering America for 10 years because he is known to kill people and genocide and massacre people 10 year could he became prime minister he is a card carrying member of a party whose another member killed gandhi so gandhi has no place there right and the president of india is a guy who is also member of that these people practice they are militia militia mm. uh, they practice with the arms uh, they got a whole lot of members there so they have been agitating against muslims there actually new york times in uh, 2014 wrote uh, an editorial that burmese buddhist extremist and indian hindu extremist actually are meeting together and conspiring against the muslim community so what they are doing in india is exactly what was done in burma you take away the citizenship oh you go to court you apply and in burma also they say oh go ahead and apply wait a minute mm-hmm. apply on what basis have been here all all along i've been citizen and serving and voting and electing my own representative they're doing the same thing in india so 4 million people have lost their citizenship in india and uh, 10000 are in detention camp they are saying that we're going to deport them uh, to bangladesh they are bengalis now bengalis india has uh, as many bengalis in bangladesh uh, hindus and all sort of people so there are border people mm. and uh, but but extremists are making a big deal about it so so this is definitely a sign of a kind of a worldwide phenomenon uh kind of returned back to um an extreme protectionism and nationalism um how do you see our our upcoming elections impacting our responses well i think in america uh one of the thing uh, we need to realize is uh, whatever you're seeing in burma and india and china mm-hmm. it's a form of islamophobia i mean acute hatred of the muslim community right acute dislike violating their religious rights uh, in china they cannot fast or cannot pray actually in those concentration camp they are forced to eat pork and alcohol uh, so so you take away rights of these people so you make people other dehumanize them delegitimize them and then you do whatever you want to do same thing was done in america except that we have law and order thank god mm-hmm. still we do and because of that uh, hate crimes went up attacks went up lot of mosque got attack uh, anti muslim laws were passed but law and order for basic security and freedom of religion muslim were able to preserve with some difficulties so at this moment in our country there is a extraordinary need for check and balance system to be restored in our country congress uh, house senate presidency white house i mean people are saying amazing thing president trump supported this guy uh, whatever his name in florida de santos uh, yeah. yeah to become a a, a governor mm-hmm. and in the first day of the campaign 
he uses the in his eye religious slur mm. uh, again to dehumanize his opponent because that person is a uh, is an african american right. so dehumanization other that's his model and now president trump is saying that if uh, if the house changes its hands there is going to be violence on the streets of america were you were you surprised at all when you heard when you heard him say that I'll tell you that I was. Really? I mean, that has been his pattern, but he is just doing exactly the type of thing Hitler was doing. Hitler yeah. was changing laws and rules and regulation. Hitler Hitler was a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, but he was using all that power to dehumanize the other, delegitimize the other, and others will take law in their hand, or they will change the laws and use laws against you. Right. I mean, the way it was done to Latino uh, uh, children uh, whose parents were seeking asylum. I mean, 1,000 children don't know where their mom and dad is right now. Yeah. And they say they, ne they may never know. Yeah, yeah. Could you believe this? Dehumanization you know, to highest level. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really surprised. And like you said, it's kind of par for the course for him. You know, it is what he's known for. Uh, that, that type of rhetoric, and he's going to continue to amp it up. You know, I mean that that has been a winning strategy for him. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, you know, I feel that all citizens and all neighbors realize what is at stake. Yeah, democracy versus authoritarianism. Yeah, and uh, they restore uh, check and balance in our government as soon as possible. And Radio Sound family, I want you to really take this to heart. We are part of the media, right? What, what we're doing here is we're talking about the issues and we're talking about them in a way that is not based in, uh, that's not based in emotion, but it's certainly based in this right that we have to offer critique of things that we as citizens see to be lacking, right, that are to the detriment of our uh, of our democracy. So... This is what is at stake, right? So when uh, Imam Mujahid says, when we think about what's at stake, what's at stake is our ability to communicate, our ability to, to speak up, um, to hold our elected officials accountable. This is what's at stake. So let's not forget that, and, and let's stay engaged. Uh, last but not least, uh, Imam Mujahid, would you please remind uh, the folks where they can get more information about the Burma Task Force um, I think that's really critical. Uh, Burma Task Force, you can go to burmataskforce.org, burmataskforce.org, or go stopgenocide.org, stopgenocide.org. And if you're a person of uh, um, another faith, neighbor of another faith, go to faithcoalition.org. Uh, all three organizations are working for the same cause. Thank you so much for Radio Islam and Sound Vision. Thank you. Thank you. Salaam alaikum. Walaikum assalam. All right, Radio Islam family, it is time for us to get out of here. We want to go ahead and thank our engineers at over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer Tariq El Amin. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. With that, we're going to leave you folks as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.